welcome to Psychology and Beyond with James Brown and Sarah Walker. we chat with academics, lecturers, tutors, postgraduate and undergraduate students about all things university life. From study tips to well-being in the classroom, forming relationships with others, and how we interact with the world around us, we don't just talk about surviving your first year, we talk about how to thrive. We also take a look at the incredible research our academics are doing that make up the exciting and broad world of psychology. These episodes form part of our commitment to welcoming students to the University of Sydney as part of Welcome Week 2023. This podcast has been created with support from the University of Sydney's Student Life Grants Program, but it has been independently created and released by the individual authors without the involvement or editorial control of the University of Sydney. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those solely of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the University of Sydney. So thank you for joining us and we hope you settle in as we bring you today's episode. On today's episode of Two Psychology and Beyond, we're thrilled to welcome Associate Professor Carolyn McCann and PhD candidate Hannah Kunst. Thank you both very much for being here today to talk about your research and your undergraduate experiences. Thank you for inviting us. So, Carolyn, you did your undergraduate degree here at the University of Sydney and your PhD as well. What was your undergraduate experience like? Well, one thing I wanted to mention is I actually did start at that other place across the city at UNSW. Mm. Uh, So one thing I think that's interesting to know for the students that start is you can change a degree, Mm. you can change universities. So I started in this thing that had a high bar to get into because I was encouraged by my parents to do that (laughs) was called uh, advanced biological and behavioral sciences and then I added an arts degree to it slash arts and then it turned out that I liked the arts degree a lot a lot better so (laughs) then I just did an arts degree but UNSW the other place told me I was not allowed to go through to psychology honors from arts so I came over here and I studied here instead much better campus, that hill. That hill was terrible. But I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the kind of information you wanted to know. Absolutely. That's, uh, <laughs> I, you know, that's the beginning of my journey here studying. Plus we have Hogwarts. Mm. It's a really beautiful building. Mm. Beautiful. Lovely place to be. Lovely place. There was the jacaranda tree was still there when I was an undergrad. Uh, and I had psychology classes in the quad. So... Yeah, that's what I did for undergrad and then I did my honours year here and then I took a gap year and started my PhD. So that was that was all kind of fun times. I was in the band comp one year, Sydney Uni. Awesome. I was not great at playing my keyboard, but there's video footage somewhere that I hope nobody ever finds. <laughs> Challenge. So you were doing psychology in your undergrad. Was there ever a point either beforehand, during and or after where you wished to practice psychology to be a psychologist or was it always the theory and research that really I took you? No, like most people, my goal or most students that I've met, my goal in doing psychology honours was partly so that I could eventually get registration as a psychologist. And one of the things I did was try and do a bit of work experience. Like I worked at a phone line 
The phone line that was near my house wasn't lifeline like most people do. It was the Sutherland Shire Christian Helpline. Uh, and after that experience, I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist anymore. Um, it might have been just inadequate training, but that was, um, that was when I realised that it was really going to take an emotional toll on me to deal with these people who were suffering and it wasn't something that I, that I thought that I could do without burning out. And also by then I discovered that I really quite liked research. Uh, so that, that's, my, that's my story. That's awesome. Hannah, what about you? you? You didn't do your undergraduate degree here in Australia. You did yours in the Netherlands. Where did you do it and what was that like? Yeah, so I am from the Netherlands and that's where I did my undergrad. I did it at Utrecht University. And it was quite different from, for example, the units that I teach now in the business school because I did liberal arts and sciences. So instead of having one big focus on, say, economics or work in organizational studies, I had three different majors and one minor. So I majored in psychology, but also anthropology and neuroscience. And then I did a minor in statistics. And we also didn't have lectures, but we only had tutorials, say, but that were much more focused on the material and always very focused on discussion. So we had smaller classrooms, say about 30 students with one person leading these tutorials, but it was mostly just us kind of talking about the material. Um, so comparing that to what we do here and how we teach at the University of Sydney is quite different. Yeah. That's really interesting. What was something that you liked most about your undergraduate years? I loved it. I loved all. I mean, every exam week, mind you, I almost had a mental breakdown. So <laughs> um, it definitely wasn't all sunshine. Um, but what I enjoyed was just learning so many different things about so many different topics, areas of interest. We could choose a lot of our subjects. And I, I found that I really enjoyed psychology the most. So I just kept adding in psychology subjects. And then I think the social aspect, like studying is hard, but it's so enjoyable because you meet people and you're doing it all together. So it's really that community feeling, learning a lot more about yourself. Um, I moved out of home at that time and I moved to another city. And so I was, you know, by myself for the first time. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's kind of just learning a lot about interesting topics, but also a lot about yourself and about how to do life, basically. Yeah, I think that's probably something a lot of the first years coming into university in 2023, being largely back in person, are going to be experiencing possibly for the first time in a couple of years. It's kind of exciting for them, probably a little daunting as well, I think. But what was something that you enjoyed most about your undergraduate, Carolyn? I mean, I'm a pretty nerdy academic, so I really quite liked the actual work. Like I liked getting lost in Fisher Library and I would, yeah. this is back in the day, you wouldn't download readings, you'd have to get a physical copy of the journal and where books were placed, I would look at all the interesting stuff around and read read around it and you know that was that was really enjoyable to me. I mean, I was I was a commuter student. I was not. A lot of people have these fond memories of being really involved, which is more harder these days than it was when I went. But I think I was I was one of the less involved students. I was like coming coming and going. Yeah. Um, I just I really liked learning new things, and I liked compared to high school that it was just so self directed. 
Carolyn, some of the research that you do looks a lot at the emotional experiences or the emotional aspects of people's lives. And one of the things that you look at is emotional intelligence. And I think it was in 2020 or so, there was a meta-analysis that you published that was looking at the relationship between emotional intelligence and academic performance. How do you think that kind of um, research applies to the way we think about university students coming for the very first time to university in first year or even through throughout their university degrees? Well, I think one of the things to think about, about what makes a student succeed academically is that succeeding academically, despite what I said about being a little nerd and just going to the library, (laughs) is it's all about the relationships that you form with your teachers and with the other students. It's also about being able to manage and regulate the emotions that are associated with the work that you do. Um, so, for example, sometimes work's kind of boring and this is like a very prototypical thing is actually having to push through the emotion of, of boredom and get your stuff done. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people feel like a great deal of pressure or a great deal of anxiety around exams or giving, uh, like, presentations. And being able to regulate those emotions is really important in terms of how to succeed. So it's not just content knowledge. It's not just how quickly you can pick up uh, the content or how well you can write an essay. The things that determine whether you're going to get get through university and get reasonable marks and succeed at the end are these qualities related to emotional intelligence. So being able to manage those emotions, being able to, you know, get your instructors to like you so they're more likely to help you. Uh, There's all these other things that are involved. It's not just uh, about being smart or being good at the content. Mm. I think that's a really interesting and important thing to consider as well from the students' perspectives is that, as you said, it's not just about whether or not they can do the content or do the work that's been given to them, but everything else, the being able to build relationships, the being able to think through how to deal with stress and anxiety with exams or assessments, working through perfectionism to be able to press submit uh, at 11.58 rather than 11.59 p.m. at the (laughs) deadline and things like that is a really important aspect of succeeding as a student. I suppose that regulating of one's own emotions in that is really important. I do have a question uh, just on that when it comes to emotional regulation and managing the emotions and these phrases and terms that have been used so far. But on emotional regulation and managing your emotions, I wonder if you might be able to speak to what that actually means in terms of managing one's emotions and regulating one's emotions of some people, uh, me included, uh, may have an idea that that would mean like uh, minimizing emotions and or not trying to experience emotion, having more of an equilibrium, flatline sort of approach to emotion as opposed to, you know, there are highs and there are lows. Like what is a proper way to manage one's emotions and all the experience of emotion and regulate emotion? Like where what is one's supposed to do, I guess, ideally. I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I think Hannah could as well. But the model of emotion regulation that we both work off in our in our work, myself and Hannah, is the 
extended process model of regulation. So emotion occurs as a process when you notice what's happening, judge that it's relevant to you, uh, make meaning out of what the situation is, and then you experience the emotion. And regulation can occur at any of those points. You can uh, regulate your emotions. So, you know, down-regulate the experience of anxiety by failing to notice what's happening or by looking away, distracting yourself from whatever's causing the emotion, or you can try to change the environment, uh, or you can socially share your emotions with somebody else in order to get support. So those are all different strategies for regulating emotions. And how effective a strategy is really depends on what resources are around you and what's happening. But in general, some strategies are almost always going to be more effective than others. And one of the most effective is cognitive reappraisal. So trying to think differently about the problem. So if you were very anxious about an upcoming statistics test in psychology, (laughs) you might think differently about it. You might think this is an opportunity uh, to show that I can do this. Or you might think, you know, everybody gets anxious. This is hard material. Uh, There's no need for me to worry about this. I just need to study and do what I need to do and go in there. So trying to change the thought processes is usually the most effective way to regulate emotions, but is also usually the most difficult. It's the most like cognitively uh, resource intensive, time intensive, effortful. Little lecture there. (laughs) You know what? Before I even knew about the theory that I'm now doing my PhD on, I did this. I used reappraisal all throughout my undergrad because I noticed that it just helped me so much. So whenever I had exams, I would get the, the physical symptoms of stress, right? So my heart rate would go up, my hands would get shaky, I might even get a bit sweaty. Um, And it would just make the whole exam experience awful. But then what I started doing, which is exactly what you just mentioned without me knowing that there's a beautiful model um, to capture this, is that I would think, well, this is a a growing opportunity. Like I've I've prepared myself. Um, This is an opportunity where I can show off how well I've studied or test um, how good I am at doing this thing that I'm doing. Um, and I also thought, well, my, my body's response is just, you know, preparing me for a difficult situation. So if I can, instead of getting more frustrated with what's happening, actually appreciate that my body's just preparing me for this difficult thing, it made the whole exam just a lot less stressful. And that's something that I now also always talk about with my students, um, because it might be something that you're already doing quite well that you're not even aware of. Um, but if you're not aware of um, how to change, how you approach, say, uh, taking an exam, um, even little things like that can have a huge impact, yeah. Uh, follow-up question, just like there are different approaches and different processes for looking at emotional regulation and emotional management, I imagine there might be different ideas and theories on uh, what is the normative experience of emotion. There would be there are acceptable individual differences in how one experiences emotion uh, and or uh, expresses whatever it may be, but I guess then there would be what maybe used to was called abnormal experiences of emotion, emotion and dysregulation. Yeah, totally, yeah. So yeah, is, is there some widely accepted idea of this is a normative way to go about you know, experiencing and having emotions or is that still something that's up for debate? So my training and area of research throughout honours and my PhD and beyond was in individual differences and what this means to me is that 
everybody differs on everything. There is the midpoint, but there is compared to some other paradigms for looking at psychology, there's no like just way to be where everybody does this. And there are these known cultural differences in the um, experience and expression of emotion. One of the biggest ones that is well known is uh, expressive suppression. So this is an emotion regulation technique where you suppress or hide the expression of your emotions in uh, face, voice or body language. And it is much more common in East Asian cultures to do this. Uh, And it's much more common in Western cultures especially in the Anglosphere, like Australia, to value the expression of high energy positive affect. And this is really very different, the expression versus suppression, particularly of these sorts of high arousal positive emotions. So there's the way in which we talk about is there a a modal model of emotion? There is. That's the name of the, the the. model of emotion that I mentioned before, but it's explicitly put like that. This is the mode. This is the most common thing that people experience, but there's huge variation and whether that variate, the variation itself is not necessarily, um, problematic in terms of being like a psychopathology. It's just different. Yeah. yeah. And and when we talk about psychopathology, that's when, you know, you're not close to the mode. So um, it, it usually means that there are some differences in experiences in effect or, you know, um, that are different than other people experience it, but also that really impair how well you're functioning in your day-to-day life. So for a lot of diagnoses in in psychopathology as well, um, part of um, being able to get this diagnosis is that it actually impairs your day-to-day functioning. So I think when you think about um, feeling down some days, that's completely normal. Everyone will have that. But if you feel down every day for most of, you know, your weeks, your months, and you actually feel like you cannot get up in the morning and you cannot do the things you used to enjoy, that's when we would say, well, this is starting to become um, a dysregulated effect. So something that you should probably try and get help with. I wanted to add on my point that it's okay to be different from the mode that all of the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that we use to give people uh, diagnoses of psychological disorders and other manuals of that type, they're all based on four criteria, which is deviance, distress, dysfunction and disorder. And deviance is deviation from what is normally experienced by the people around you. And that on its own is not enough. I think that was the point that I was trying to make, especially in this kind of area, is that there's a lot of differences. And Hannah was giving examples of how you have to be, has to be distressing to you, has to impair your functioning in day-to-day life and meet the criteria for a disorder order. Something that's really interesting about the work that you both do is the cross-disciplinary which is that you take. So Hannah, some of the work that you do is looking at how we regulate the emotions of people within teams or perhaps if you're a supervisor, how you might manage the people that you that you work with. What kind of um, 
what kind of impact does this extrinsic or emotion regulation have within a workplace, within within these teams? So it's it's good that we talked about emotion regulation regulation of your own emotions before, because I think that kind of helps explain what it is that we're looking at. So we just talked about, you know, when you um, use reappraisal to see your own situation in a more positive light, that's generally helpful. Um, but maybe if you express your emotions, um, then show them on your face, that, that might be less helpful. Um, but a lot of our lives, we're not just by ourselves, we're actually interacting with other people, right? And especially at work, um, whether or not you're like your boss or your coworkers, you'll be spending a lot of time with them. Um, and of course, we will also have to deal, but also will deal with each other's emotions. So we look at how you use specific strategies to um, help others feel better. You can also look at how you make others feel worse. But what we've been finding so far is that it's it's kind of a similar finding from when we regulate our own emotions. So when we help someone else reappraise their situation, so helping someone else to see their situation in a more positive light, this is a helpful behavior. So what we did is that we looked at a hospital in China and this was right after the first wave of COVID. So this was a high stress time at work. Um, And we looked at how leaders in a hospital regulated the emotions of their followers. Um, And these were nurses, technicians, people running around in a hospital every day. And we found that when these leaders helped their followers reappraise their emotions, they actually experienced a higher job satisfaction and a lower burnout a couple of months later. So that's a very direct uh, influence on how they're actually enjoying their experience at work, but also the influence that that has on their well-being, so burnout in this case. Um, And it shows that it's these little interactions, you know, you just meet your supervisor at work and they just, you know, help you kind of make sense of your situation. That can actually be very helpful. Um, We also looked at coworkers. And we found something very similar. So we found that when you try to help your coworker by reappraising their emotions, um, you experience lower conflict at work, which is great to know, I think, for a lot of us. That's helpful. Yes, <laughs> we don't want conflict. Um, but, but similarly, when we suppress others' emotions, this has negative effects that we found. So we found that coworkers actually experience uh, more conflict when you ask them, hey... <laughs> Turn that frown upside down. I don't want to see that, um, surprisingly. And uh, we also found that they experience lower team member exchange. So that's kind of how much do you trust your coworker? How much can you rely on your coworker? So it's even that these these things that we do at work to deal with others' emotions also actually influence how well we can do our work. Because if we're constantly in conflict with others or don't trust others, you can imagine that that will also influence how well we do our job. Yeah, that's really interesting. So essentially the importance of regulating effective regulation within the workplace is really important for a variety of different workplace outcomes, whether it's performance or the way people feel being at work, working within their team, working with their bosses and things like that. I'm reminded of of that saying, be kind, I guess, is that thing that I always think about um, whenever I I hear you talk about this research. That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose looking at a different kind of focus, a really huge project that you're working on at the moment, Carolyn, is looking at emotion regulation or extrinsic emotion regulation within romantic couples. What, What kind of things, how important is that within romantic relationships? So I was talking with... 
Hester Zhao this morning, who's about to start a PhD with me about a study she'd done in her MPhil where she'd looked at uh, romantic couples and the strategies that they used to regulate each other's emotions and which strategies actually made their partner feel like they had higher relationship quality, so lower conflict, greater feelings that they were satisfied in the relationship, things like that, uh, greater intimacy. So the critical uh, regulation strategy, the way that you can regulate your partner's emotions to make them feel better, is valuing. So this is making the other person feel valued so that they know that you value them, you value your relationship with them, you value what they do, you think that they're important. So this is the thing that really stands out in a romantic relationship. Uh, I don't think it's only in romantic relationships. I think Hannah's looked at that as well, if I remember correctly. This is all part of the same larger project. Uh, It's a collaboration between myself and Dr. Rebecca Pincus and Hannah's two supervisors at the business school, uh, Anya Johnson and Helena Wynne. What about regulating the emotions of others that you don't know very well? So, I mean, we've been talking about people that we work with, people that we're in relationships with, I assume we're going to see regularly. But what about people that you don't know so well, an acquaintance or you're in a shopping centre and and you you might come across someone who's distressed? What, What do we do in those kind of situations? I had an honour student a few years ago look at this question and she ended up publishing that paper. She's a clinical psychologist now, Victoria. Uh, She was looking at whether closeness to the other person affected what you would do to regulate their emotions. And the answer is if you're close to them as opposed to a stranger, like your closest friend versus someone you don't know very well, you just do more of everything really. Um, Particularly, though, I think the strongest effect was for the receptive listening. You're just much more likely to be receptive to listening to their feelings, to encourage them them to share. Yeah. People do help strangers, though, and it it is effective to do so. They just do it less. Yeah. I think it also has to do a little bit with the social norm. Like, I feel like typically when we encounter someone who starts telling us about their issues and we don't know them very well, we're a bit shied away. We're like, oh, I'm not not quite sure if I want to engage with this person right now, even though maybe we know that the right thing is to help someone. But I know that, you know, if someone starts telling me their deep life story and I've just met them, I'm a bit taken aback. I'm like, oh, okay. okay." Um, But if it's my best friend or, you know, someone I really enjoy at work, if Sarah comes up to me, um, I am all ears. I will receptively listen to her all day. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto, of course. (laughs) it's, It's kind of a really interesting kind of thing. If you do come across someone that you don't know very well, you've just met or you don't know at all, and they do start to share something that is um, emotionally, I suppose, there's some negative emotions in there. How much do you think the way that you feel at that time might also influence the way that you then react or the way that you then engage with someone in that way? Do you think that the way that you're feeling at the time might also influence the way that you respond? 
I'm not aware of any research on this, so this is purely my own thoughts and experience. But I definitely know that um, the the mood I am in when I leave the house really influences how I engage with other people. So some days I might just not feel very energetic or very happy, and then I'm typically more closed off, and I'm also more closed off for social interaction. So probably when I would encounter someone who you know would start talking to me, I'm a bit more like. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, versus, you know, when I wake up, it's a beautiful sunny day. I'm very happy. I'm excited. I'm much more likely to also have these small conversations with strangers. Yeah. So I can completely imagine that that would be the same with emotion regulation, right? That if I'm in a happy state or I feel like I have the energy to help someone else out, I might be more likely to do that. Um, yeah. So then taking that from a stranger perspective and putting that back into like a workplace or romantic relationships or friendships, um, do you think a similar thing might might exist in there as well? Is that the way that we feel in the moment is then going to impact the way that we might um, try and regulate someone or maybe our goals for regulation, the reasons that we might um, have for regulating someone might be different depending on how we feel in the moment? Well, 100% emotions evolved as communication systems, pre-language. So if you can see that someone looks absolutely like furious uh, you'll know that they might be a threat to you yep. <laughs> uh, and if you are feeling anxious at that point you're not going to go anywhere near them yep mm. I mean it's your emotional states drive your behavior they've evolved as survival tendencies these these you know loosely coupled physiological behavioral tendency expressive, and thoughts all rolled into one to keep you alive. Yeah, you can even link that back to um, emotional intelligence, what Carolyn was talking about earlier. Say when your partner comes home from work and he's clearly, or she, or they, are in a very foul mood, um, you might want to chat to them or try and make them feel better, but you might also have learned that maybe you just need to give them some space or other way around. If you're in a terrible mood, you come home and your partner is all chatty and you're just like, get off my back. I don't want to see you right now. <laughs> um, you might get into a bit of an argument. So your emotional intelligence and how, how much you've learned about the behaviors um, that you do to regulate others' emotions, your own emotions, emotional states, recognizing other people's emotions, they all come together in that way as well. You've just highlighted something else that's really interesting there, and that is that this idea of why the reasons that we might regulate someone goes both ways. It's not just about why you might regulate yourself, but also why you might regulate your partner and that they can be at odds with each other. Um, so kind of along the things um, that we were just uh, talking about in, in um, the past couple of questions, say someone is having an emotional experience, presumably a negative one about something. Some people may want to, and this may be an incorrect use of cognitive uh, reappraisal, um, but uh, go to that person with um, uh, solutions and or other ways to look at the thing that has just happened. Um in the moment, that person may not be receptive to that and or that may not be helpful for them because they either want to just experience and express the emotions first, have that journey of time, and then look at anything to reappraise the situation or to reframe it in another way. So is there is there research and or thoughts and or on um, someone's having a negative emotional experience that uh, either something about them as a person, they may be up to hearing solutions or that should never be the first pass at you know dealing with someone who's having 
emotional experience. It should always be validating, hearing first, and then once they're over the peak, then approaching with reappraisal or whatever it may be. Like, is there yeah thoughts on what's the best way to go with that? I I think the classic example is that you're talking with a partner and you have this issue and you're telling them about your horrible day at work and then your partner's like, well, how about you just tell them next time? Or, you know, coming up with all these very helpful behaviors you could have done and you just want to feel listened to. Um, Yeah. So I think that's a very common experience for many of us. Um, Personally, I've had to tell my partner to sometimes maybe ask me before giving me all these suggestions. Um, So if I come home and I tell him X, Y, Z happened, um, he has now learned very thoughtfully to ask me, um, do you want me to listen to you or do you want advice or help or actions you could do? Nine out of 10 times for me, it's just listen to me. Just let me talk. Um, Sometimes it's actually I would really appreciate um, you helping me out and giving me some suggestions. So I think it's it's learning together about what works for you, but also just being able to communicate and ask um, in terms of, of thoughts on this. Carolyn, do you have anything else? So it's clearly a com- component of therapy to listen before you give advice. This is any good therapist will do this. I don't think there is yet research on it in this particular domain with these particular labels for those behaviours. But it is the case that Nobody ever does just one strategy Mm. at a time. Mm. It just isn't how human behaviour works. So when someone comes to you and they're very upset, you'll be comforting them, uh, you'll be telling jokes, humour is another strategy, you'll be... before you might be telling them you value them, you might be uh, getting them to try and think differently about the problem. And you might do all of those things and the order in which you do them and how you implement them is really important. So it's not just that you you do it, you get someone to think differently about their problem, it's how you do it. If you jump in right away, if you implement that strategy poorly, you might just make them like not like you very much. You might be seen as condescending. So the implementation is really important and I think that's also where you get the combination of strategies being really important so that you've got to have listening with something else. Listening alone, if depending on the person, can kind of just devolve into rumination Mm. where everybody complains about how bad things are and then they never, like, get to thinking differently about it. And that's not helpful. That's not helpful. (laughs) Um, I've got two related questions. One of them is more like an operationalization definition thing. Emotional intelligence um, uh, and then I guess emotional regulation and these sorts of things. Um, If someone is, you know, emotionally intelligent, um, whatever metric, you know, we may think there may be for that, does that then by default mean one-to-one relationship that they are successful at emotion regulation um, and that they are good at that or are they somewhat disparate, disconnected ideas and things, emotional intelligence and emotion regulation? They're connected. Emotional intelligence is a set of capacities that people have, whereas emotion regulation is a set of behaviours that people do. So people who have these capacities, people who can perceive emotions more accurately, can use the emotions they have to help them 
do better or who can understand what's going on emotionally, why they feel this way, why others feel that way, what how they might feel next and who knows the best strategies to manage those emotional experience. That's all emotional intelligence, people who can know and perceive things. But then that leads them to behave differently depending on whether they're high or low on emotional intelligence and that's the regulation. So Hester, the student I was talking about earlier, has just completed and submitted a meta-analysis looking at the research on whether or how emotional intelligence relates to the use of different strategies. Uh, so a meta-analysis is a summary of all the findings in that research area and she's found that people who have greater emotional intelligence use more cognitive reappraisal. That was the good one. They also use more direct situation modification. They're more likely to just try and change the situation and they use less experiential avoidance. Like they are less likely to just leave the situation or run away from their problems. Do you think it's possible because you can kind of dissect emotional intelligence between I'm very good at um, recognizing my own emotions and others' emotions and then regulating my emotions and regulating others' emotions. Um, do you think that we could be really good at recognizing emotions but not good at, at then regulating them ourselves or others as well? The theory is that you have to have the lower level abilities like being able to perceive emotions accurately in order to develop the higher level ones, like being able to understand the causes of the emotions and how the emotional state will change and being able to know what to do next. Like you have to be able to see it to know what to do, but seeing it is not enough. So there are, would be people who can perceive what's going on around them, who can see that others are angry or sad, but still not really be any better than average at knowing what to do. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a related question about people who are good at helping someone else through their emotional experiences. Uh, you may have a clinician, psychologist, whoever it may be, that is helping someone deal with and or through an emotional experience. That person who is doing the helping, they may either not take on that person's emotion at all, like um, uh, they leave the office for the day and then like, you know, they heard some very heavy things that were going on and they don't take on that person's emotions. Another person, uh, another clinician or just another friend, person, whoever it may be, may be equally as good at helping that person through the emotional experience, but they walk away with having taken that emotional experience on and like all oh, that was heavy and, and like it's affecting them and it's playing on their mind as they go home and they're thinking about the person, whatever it may be. Is there some dissociation and or connection relationship, whatever it may be, between how much a person takes on the emotions of others and then how successful they may be at, at helping another person go through their emotions? It sounds like what you're talking about I'm going to put it in the language of, of my research area, <laughs> is are people who are good at regulating others' emotions also good at regulating their own emotions? Because <laughs> I think I think that's, that's what that was, is if you're helping someone yeah. but it makes you feel upset, uh, 
do, you know, some people will have the the capacity to also regulate their own emotions and others won't. And it's very, it's very difficult to tease that apart. I mean, because it's partly a matter of if you're regulating this other person and they're feeling very intense emotions or you're using very energy intensive or attention intensive strategies like cognitive reappraisal, you might not have enough left for yourself. Mm. So there's a bit of a balance. I mean, it is it is the case in the research that I've seen that people who tend to use effective strategies for regulating other people's emotions also use effective strategies for regulating their own emotions. But the ins and outs of it are not super clear yet. So that's going to be interesting, I think. Yeah, I can I can speak to that from more of like a, a clinical background because I, I did do some clinical training. And what this reminds me of is that there is a phrase that we use a lot in therapy um, to kind of help you understand how important it is to also take care of yourself when taking care of other people. Um, and it's it's the, the thought of an oxygen mask. So when you're in an airplane and, you know, the pressure drops, you need the oxygen mask masks, um, they ask you to put on your own mask first before helping other people, because whilst you're helping other people and you don't have your own oxygen mask, you're going to pass out and you cannot actually help others. So it's very important to um, look after yourself also when you're looking after others. And I think when you're a psychologist or when you're very regularly dealing with other people's intense or negative emotions, it's very important to look after yourself and whether that is by very effectively regulating your own emotions or being able to step away from from the work and, you know, have your weekends off. Um, it has a huge impact in maintaining your own well-being and therefore others' well-being. What I noticed myself when I was in my training uh, for clinical psychology is that it was learning as well on how to um, help others and deal with these quite intense events and emotions oftentimes, and then being able to leave it at work. And at the start, I really was not good at this. I remember um, when I first started, I would come home at the end of the day and I would not speak to anyone. I was living with other people, with my friends. I would just get into the house. I would serve myself some food. I would sit on the couch and watch some really trashy uh, TV. And I just couldn't speak anymore. I was completely emotionally exhausted. And as time went on, um, it became less exhausting to do the work, but I was also better able to kind of leave it at work and know that I would be better able to help other people if I wouldn't lose sleep over it myself every night. In my head, as you were saying that, I was thinking of something. The example I was thinking of is in attention and sensation and perception. So um, there were theories that there is a shared pool of attentional resources. And so when you're dealing with sensory information coming in, one piece of sensory information is sapping from that one pool. And then so you have less left to then deal with the other things. But then as you know, research and experimentation developed, it realized, well, no, we may not have a shared pool of attention or resources for sensation and sensory information, but rather the what is required of you from that sensory information is going to determine how much attentional resources it's taking that there's separate attentional resources so like you know if you are sensory information is coming in and then you um, you know are required to spatially deal with it there'll be a pool of spatial attentional resources but then if you're required to like identify or like think something else about that sensory information it's coming from its own pool of attentional resources and I know um, emotion may not be as like a hardwired um, brain located thing as like attention and sensation and perception. But so is emotional regulation like there is and just the experience of emotion, it's like 
some abstract central pool that like your ability to have emotions, deal with emotions, all these sorts of things are coming from just the one pool, or there are like pockets of emotional processes that are largely independent of each other or that they interact or that's what I was thinking in my head that I wanted to ask about. I think I can talk about some theory in uh, business that really reminds me of that. And I think Carolyn can talk about um, the emotion regulation aspect of that. Um, Cause when you, when you mentioned that I had to think of this theory in um, organizational behavior, which is called conservation of resource theory. And this basically says that when we're at work, but of course this will extend to other areas of life, we have a fixed amount of resources and we aim to keep these, right? And certain things that we experience at work um, will cost us resources. So we interact with people. We have to do different and difficult tasks. All of this costs us resources. Um, we can also do activities or have environments that will give us back some resources. So when we have lovely colleagues, when we're doing work that we really enjoy, this will probably infuse resources. And it's good if we're in an equilibrium um, of how much resources we get and how many resources we need. And we kind of want to keep an equilibrium. But when some things happen at work, say there is a merger, say there's COVID-19, um, it can happen that we lose more resources than we gain. And then you have a negative spiral of these resources. And we know that that leads to negative things like burnout, not enjoying work, even leaving your job. Um, and so knowing that certain things can actually help infuse resources is, is the way that I link this to emotion regulation. Say that um, when other people effectively uh, make me feel better at work, that might be a resource infusing action. Yeah, some are known to be more attention grabbing than others or more resource heavy. So one of the things that's relatively well known for how people regulate their own emotions is that when the emotions are quite intense, people do not and really cannot use reappraisal and they prefer distraction because when you're experiencing extremely strong emotions, it's very difficult to then cognitively process what's going on in order to form like a different meaning. So when emotions are very intense, people tend to use distraction. They just like look away or get away from the intense emotions. But when the emotion uh, is relatively mild, then they're more likely to use uh, cognitive reappraisal. And when we're talking about brain regions, uh, the brain region for emotions is the amygdala and the limbic system. But when I say emotions, it's not quite accurate. Like the amygdala and the limbic system would specifically deal more with uh, strong emotions of fear and threat and those sort of uh, very intense uh very intense fear-related emotions rather than, you know, emotions of embarrassment or emotions of boredom mm. or emotions of some something else like irritation or jealousy or something like that. So when I talk about emotions, it's, it's very broad and diffuse. <laughs> I have another question to ask. When you were just talking about that, it reminded me of a smell uh, of all the senses that we have. That is the one that is most quickly and heavily tied to emotional experiences because of the way the sensation is brought into the brain. It is received at the top of the nose, uh, processed immediately in the brain directly above where the top of the nose is, and then it's like heavily connected to the limbic system, amygdala, and these other parts of the brain for memory as well, hypothalamus, these sorts of things. Um, uh, but 
all of the other sensory uh, systems in a, in a body go through a longer process to get through the brain. They go through the thalamus and then other areas first before they would even touch, you know, emotion um, or even if they're related at all. What that made me think of though was that the speed of an emotional experience. So is there like individual differences and or is there a reason why some emotions may be slower building after a thing or like you ruminate about it and then it builds and then it comes whereas like something happens and then you have the immediate intense emotional experience and response to it like what modulates that and or like well what is the cause for why someone may have like an immediate emotional reaction to something whereas another person may to the same stimulus have more of a slow burning sort of situation any interesting thoughts you want to have on that um yeah so most modern theories of emotion are appraisal based systems so that what causes the emotion is your appraisal of the personally meaningful elements of the situation and some emotions have more complex appraisal patterns than others so the emotion of interest for example or curiosity goes by either of those names uh, the appraisal pattern for that is novelty and complexity and it's going to take you a while time wise to get to figuring out whether something is novel and complex whereas other emotions like fear have uh, it's threat there's a threat I feel fear or frustration my goals are blocked and I think when we're talking about individual differences in the speed and intensity of emotions we're talking about I think the individual differences in appraisal systems in how quickly or how intensely you meaning make what's going on. This has been a really interesting chat about the various different things that you're both looking at in terms of your research and extrinsic emotion regulation, regulation, emotional intelligence, but also in terms of your own experience as an undergrad, just thinking of Maybe a a last kind of fun question to ask. If you could only listen to one song or medley for the rest of your life today, what would it be? Is it going to be a Taylor Swift song? (laughs) (laughs) Look, we both know I've had her newest album on repeat, which, um, (laughs) I mean, it's fantastic, but um, (laughs) that probably causes me to not want to listen to her (laughs) for the rest of my life. (laughs) Honestly, I'm going to be really boring and it's going to have to be one of those like lo-fi, hip-hop-ish, like just kind of sound songs because otherwise I will lose my mind um, and they help me focus and I need to finish my PhD so yeah, um, yeah born right. response there yeah, you go lo-fi mm-hmm. hip-hop-ish mm-hmm. all right totally, yeah. kind of generic yeah. all right yeah. love it mm-hmm. what about you Carolyn well I'm gonna go the opposite end of the spectrum here yeah and I'm gonna go Joan Jett's bad reputation <laughs> nice mm. <laughs> that's awesome rocking out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both for your insights and the really interesting chat today I think it's going to be really interesting for some of our incoming 2023 first year students to to listen to the impact of emotion regulation on their lives and potentially the lives of those around them so that's awesome thank you associate professor carol mccann and soon to be dr hannah kunst Thanks. Thanks you so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us.